0: Good morning. Uh, For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Ryan Spooner. Um, I actually grew up in this church and I'm in seminary right now uh, at Gordon-Conwell, north of Boston, a little north of Boston. I'm starting my third year and um, I'm working on what's called the Master of Divinity and I will hopefully be done in three semesters. So get get getting close Getting close to the end. I finished all my Greek and Hebrew requirements, which is awesome. I don't have any more language quizzes every week. A couple of weeks ago, I watched a documentary on Netflix called Portrait of a Killer. And contrary to what you might think, this was not a documentary about a scientific study into the minds of murderers or a biography of Charles Manson or something like that. The killer this documentary portrayed was stress. And it made a very compelling case that stress is a really, really unhealthy thing. When you're stressed, your body gets flooded with two hormones, adrenaline and glucocorticoids. I'm going to be saying glucocorticoids a lot, so I hope it comes out as smoothly as it just did the last two times. The first service went well, but it's kind of a tough word. Glucocorticoids. Uh, And these hormones are very good at empowering you to, say, run really fast away from a bear, or uh, lift something heavy that's fallen on top of a family member, or swim for a long time to keep from drowning. They're very good at giving you the extra strength you need to survive when there's an immediate physical threat. And ideally, the way things work is that you notice an immediate physical threat, your body gets flooded with adrenaline and glucocorticoids, you briefly become like Superman, and then you flee to safety, slay the dragon, swim the mile, whatever you need to do, and then all is well, and your hormones return back to normal. But things don't always operate that smoothly, unfortunately, because our stress response doesn't just kick in when there's an immediate physical threat to our lives. Our stress response kicks in for all kinds of other reasons, uh, like public speaking. Hypothetically, of course, I don't know anything about that. Uh, Or say you have a really intense job with a workload that you can barely keep up with, and you're desperate to perform well. Well, chances are, throughout the week, and especially on Monday morning, and some of you know, even on Sunday evening, uh, your glucocorticoid and adrenaline levels are going to be elevated. And there's all kinds of other stressors that produce this elevation of these hormones for us. Relational strain in our marriages and friendships, threats to our reputation, health concerns, uh, you know, waiting to hear results from the doctor, trying to parent troubled kids, traffic jams. And unlike immediate physical threats, these kinds of threats don't appear and then end in a few minutes or seconds usually. These kinds of threats linger. And so instead of just getting a spike of stress hormones for a moment, many of, us spend up, many of us end up spending a large portion of our lives marinating in a stew of adrenaline and glucocorticoids. And that can really hurt us, because your body isn't meant to be subjected to these hormones for such long periods of time. Because in order to produce this extra jolt of hormones, your body needs to shut off all the unnecessary stuff. I'm using air quotes around unnecessary because the stuff it turns off is necessary to long-term health. One of those unnecessary things is your immune system. So this is why if you're stressed, you're more susceptible to disease. Did you guys know, I didn't know this until I was preparing for this, uh, that two-thirds of us already have inside of us right now the bacteria that causes ulcers. It's just hanging out in our stomachs. And if we're not stressed, it's not a problem. But when we suffer from chronic stress, our immune system is depleted. It loses its strength because it's trying to produce these extra hormones. And when that happens, our immune system stops blocking the bacteria in our stomachs from causing ulcers. There's more bad news, though. (laughs) Uh, Long-term exposure to stress hormones elevates your blood pressure and increases your heart rate which puts extra wear and tear on your arteries. So over time, that makes little holes form in the walls of your arteries, which that then plaque collects in those holes, and that puts you at risk for a heart attack. So you can have two people who have pretty much uh, the same diet, uh, similar genes, uh, but if one of them is chronically stressed, he or she is far more likely to be uh, susceptible uh, to a heart attack. Long-term exposure to stress also weakens our memory, most of us have experienced the short-term version of this. Uh, you're really nervous, someone asks you a question, and when, tr- when you try to answer, your mind goes blank. Anyone know what that feels like? That happens to me at least twice a week in school. A professor asks me a question, you know, how do you translate that word? I'm not expecting it. <gasps> oh, I can't think of anything. Um, any musicians here probably know, if you, re- if you get nervous enough and you're supposed to play something, your fingers just forget what to do. They become like noodles. Similarly, chronic long-term stress hurts your ability to retain and recall memories. Long-term exposure to stress can also cause us to gain weight. And uh, not only that, but to gain weight in the place where it's most damaging to our health, like right around the middle. I don't know why this is, uh, but apparently there's a lot of evidence to support the connection. Long-term exposure to stress can also lead to depression. If your body wallows in adrenaline and glucocorticoids long enough, it becomes harder for you to enjoy any of the things that you would normally enjoy. Sun doesn't shine as bright, food doesn't taste as good. And finally, long-term exposure to stress can make us age faster. What happens as we age is that these things called telomeres on the ends of our chromosomes get shorter. And studies show that long-term exposure to stress uh, hormones causes these telomeres to shorten prematurely. Now, if you're anything like me, (laughs) At this point, you're feeling stressed about stress. You're thinking, oh, man, I know exactly what he's talking about. I've had adrenaline and glucocorticoids pulsing through me for 20, 30, 40 years. Who knows how much damage I've done? And if you're thinking that, you can probably feel your heart rate going up a little. And you feel your chest tightening because you're anxious about that. You're feeling anxious about anxiety, which only produces more anxiety, and when you realize you're getting more anxious because you're anxious about anxiety, that just makes you even more anxious. You're getting hosed by adrenaline and glucocorticoids, and your body recognizes that as a threat, and then it says, oh, I know what will help, more adrenaline and glucocorticoids. (laughs) So for those of us who have a problem uh, with stress and anxiety, Just saying, anxiety is really bad for you probably isn't going to do us much good. That's like trying to put out a fire with more fire. It's like saying, be very afraid of being afraid. That's not what we need. What we need, what we're desperate for, is someone to help us alleviate our fear. And fortunately, this is what the Apostle Paul does for the Philippians in this morning's passage. We read it twice already. I'm going to read it one more time because it's short and it's important. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Philippians had plenty of things to be anxious about, I'm sure. I'm sure they had all the relational, existential, and health-related anxieties that we have today. But in addition to those things, on top of that, they also had the threat of persecution. And this threat was significant enough that Paul was compelled to say in chapter 1, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. So that gives us a pretty strong indication that believing in Christ was a dangerous thing for these people. Now let's be honest, it's not really a dangerous thing for us right here, right now. Sure, some people might think we're weird or get offended by what we believe. Some people might tell us that we can't pray in school or put a nativity scene on the town hall. But you can bet that when Paul says, it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ, He's not talking about the Philippians not being able to say Merry Christmas because it's politically incorrect. He's not talking about the kind of opposition that makes you annoyed or frustrated. He's talking about the kind of opposition that leads you to question the safety of you and your loved ones. But to a people who are faced with all the anxieties that we face, and then some, Paul says, may your adrenaline and glucocorticoid levels never be chronically elevated. I don't know what version of the message that would be. It's a scientific literalist edition or something. But what about the persecution? Can't we be anxious about that? No. Don't be anxious about anything. But how? How can we not be anxious? I saw a comedy sketch recently where Bob Newhart plays a psychiatrist. Has anybody seen this? Um, I thought it was really funny. Uh, a woman comes into his office to talk about how she has this reoccurring fear of being buried in a box. And so she tells Bob Newhart, and Bob Newhart's advice is, Stop it! <laughs> and she keeps telling him all these problems that she has, and he just keeps going, Oh, stop it! Stop it! So is that what we're supposed to do with our anxiety? Stop it! Do not be anxious! Do not be anxious! Well, we can try, but I don't think that'll work. Thankfully, Paul gives us a little more to go on than just stop it. Do not be anxious about anything. Stop it. But, in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, submit your requests to God. So there are two commands there. One is very obvious. The second one can sometimes be missed. Two commands for what we're supposed to replace our anxiety with. We're supposed to, one, present our requests to God through prayer, and two, be thankful. Now, what I find interesting and even a little bit frustrating is that those two commands seem to be at odds with each other. Because people who are thankful don't usually have many requests, do they? Thankful people are contented people, and contented people don't ask for much. And people who have requests, they're not usually in a very thankful mood, right? Because they feel like they're lacking something. That's why they have requests. And yet Paul tells us to bring our requests to God with thanksgiving. We're supposed to simultaneously acknowledge that there are things we want that we don't have and be thankful for what we do have at the same time. And that there's something about doing this that causes the peace of God to guard our hearts and our minds. So the essence of Paul's advice for keeping the adrenaline and glucocorticoid levels in a healthy range is this. Ask for what you want and be thankful for what you have. Ask for what you want and be thankful for what you have. Right now, I'm taking my second preaching class at Gordon-Conwell. And uh, the thing that they just drum into you over and over again in the preaching classes is you've got to have a big idea. You've got to have a big idea. If you get up there and you preach, and when you get down and we ask, what's his big idea, and nobody knows, automatic, A to C. C, that's, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> so you've got to have a big idea. So that's the big idea. Ask for what you want <laughs> and be thankful for what you have. So let's all say it. <laughs> So let's say that together, ask for what you want, and be thankful for what you have, thank you. Okay, so if you ever see my professor just walking down the street, I don't know why that would happen, and he says, what did Ryan preach about on Sunday? You say, ask for what you want, be thankful for what you have. That'll be, that'll be good for me, very good for me. Okay, let's talk about asking for what you want. All of us want things that we don't have, it's kind of part of being human. I would like a 12-string guitar, an eternally valid movie theater pass, and an uh, all-expense-paid trip to Six Flags uh, before they close for the season, which is coming up soon. But not having any of those things isn't going to make me anxious. So those aren't really the kind of requests that Paul's talking about here. The kind of requests Paul's talking about are requests like, God, Please give me a job so I can support my family. God, make this cancer go away. God, help my son to get home safely. God, free my daughter from alcoholism. God, don't let me be alone all my life. Or if you're a Christian right now in Syria or Iraq, God, protect my family from ISIS. Whatever our anxiety-producing concerns are, Paul tells us to identify them, to turn them into requests and to submit them to God. One of the interesting things about what Paul's doing here is that he is acknowledging a connection between our anxieties and our desires. Between our anxieties and our desires. Don't be anxious, dot, 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 submit your request to God. In other words, don't be anxious, dot, 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 tell God what you want. So when we're anxious, we need to ask ourselves, what is the want or desire that this anxiousness is coming from? Because anxiousness always springs from either a fear that we're never going to have something that we really want or the fear that we're going to lose something that we really want. It's always one of those two. And sometimes it's really, really obvious what it is that we want. Say we want our families to be safe and provided for. And that kind of desire is very easy For us to turn into a request before God. But sometimes it's not so clear what desire is at the root of our anxiousness. And sometimes if we're going to turn our anxiousness into a request before God, we have to do some real soul-searching first. For example, say you're someone who struggles with social anxiety. When you're around people, especially people you don't know, your your adrenaline and glucocorticoids are through the roof. So you need to ask yourself, reflect on it. What is it that I want that I'm afraid I'm either not going to get or that I'm going to lose that's making me such a mess in these situations? And maybe you reflect on that question and you realize that what you really, really want is people's approval. You want people to like you. And then maybe you reflect some more and you realize that the reason you want people to like you is because you want to feel significant. You want to feel valuable. And once you've done that soul-searching, well, now you have a request that you can take before the Lord. God, I want to feel valuable. I want to feel like I matter. Help me to see myself the way you see me. So we need to take the time to figure out what we want and bring it before God in prayer. But, as the big idea has already established, that's only the first part of what Paul says we need to do with our anxious thoughts. The second thing is to be thankful for what we have. So this means that when we come to God to ask him for something we want, we need to at the same time remember what he's already done for us. So what has he already done? James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. I love that verse. And that means that every good and perfect gift is from him. Love, friendship, laughter, beauty, the origin of everything that makes life living, including life itself, is God. But you might say, especially if you're a very stressed, anxious person, that sometimes life doesn't really feel worth living. You might say, I'm supposed to come to God with thanksgiving for love, friendship, laughter, and beauty. Well, I'm not seeing those things in my life. I feel unloved. My friends have betrayed me. I see more reasons to cry than to laugh. Instead of beauty, I see ugliness. But even in those moments of darkness, those of us who know Christ do still have reasons to be thankful. Because even though we might feel unloved, there is still a God who loves each one of us to die on a cross for our sake. Even though we might feel lonely and friendless, there is still a God who calls us his friends. Even when we see more reasons to cry than to laugh, there is still a God who promises that one day every tear will be wiped away. And even when all we can see is ugliness, there is still a God who promises that he is making everything new even if we've lost everything in the world, even if we're about to lose life itself, there is still a God who has triumphed over death and has announced that the grave will not have the last word. We still have the good news. We still have the gospel. We still have the news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And I know that when we find ourselves in anxious, dark times, it can be very hard to believe that gospel. It can be very hard to be truly thankful for it. I'll admit that if I was a Christian in Iraq or Syria right now, with ISIS saying, convert or die, I think it would be pretty hard for me to have much thanksgiving in my prayers right now. But the Philippians were probably closer to that situation than to our situation here at Trinity. And yet Paul still told them to be thankful. Why? Because they still had the gospel. This is what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to recognize at the beginning of the passage when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now I want us to notice something. He didn't say rejoice in everything. He says rejoice in the Lord. I remember when I was a little kid in Sunday school here at this church, I heard a lesson once about always rejoicing. And I remember one of my young peers objected. I don't remember who it was. It was this is was a long time ago. The memory is pretty vague. Um, but my young peer said, uh, so if you're walking down the street and someone shoots you, you're supposed to say, thanks God for that. That's stupid. <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, I can't, I can't remember even who the Sunday school teacher is. Maybe you're here right now, and you remember this incident, and you can tell me (laughs) what you said. But whatever was said, I hope it was something like this. You're right. That would be stupid. Because God wouldn't have been the one who fired that gun. In fact, the person who fired that gun would have been breaking God's commands. And we certainly shouldn't rejoice in that. Yes, we're always supposed to rejoice, but we're not supposed to rejoice in violence and disease and evil. We're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. And that means we rejoice in who God is and what God has done through Jesus. We rejoice in the gospel. So when it comes to being thankful for what we have, the most important thing to remember is what God has given us through Jesus. That's how we can present our requests with thanksgiving. Even in the midst of the, dark, the darkest darkness that the world has to offer. And Paul goes on to say that when we do this, when we ask for what we want and are thankful for what we have, something profound happens. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds. We get to experience peace. Relief. Relief from chronic adrenaline and glucocorticoids. But this peace that we're given, at least in the eyes of most of the world, doesn't make sense. Paul says it transcends all understanding. So why is that? Well, the reason is because it runs so counter to our natural expectations. The natural way of thinking goes something like this, I'm feeling anxious because I don't have enough money, so how will I experience peace? By getting money. If I don't get the money, no peace. If I get the money, peace. But the peace that God gives is the kind of peace that endures whether the money shows up or not. And it's a much better kind of peace. Because when you're depending on the money for peace, even if you get it, you could lose it next week. It's not reliable. It's not trustworthy. But the peace that comes from God is a solid rock that you can build real, lasting joy on. Even Jesus himself said the peace he offers is different from the peace the world offers. In John's gospel, right before he's about to go off to be crucified, he tells the disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, but I do not give to you as the world gives. I do not give to you as the world gives. Like Paul says, Jesus' peace is a peace that transcends all understanding. Before the message, we sang a modern version of an old song, It Is Well. And I didn't know this until very recently, um, but that song is an incredible example of the peace that transcends all understanding. The the words to It Is Well were written by a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer in Chicago in the mid-19th century. He had a wife, uh, four daughters, and a son. And when his son was four, he contracted scarlet fever and died. And then not long after that, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 happened, and it destroyed all of Spafford's real estate investments. And one day, all gone. So he just suffered this terrible double whammy of tragedy, his son and then his investments. In reeling from that, uh, Spafford wanted to give his wife and his daughters a much-needed va- vacation. And so in 1873, two years later, he arranged for them to take a boat trip to Europe while he went on an evangelistic campaign in England. So he's going to do the Lord's work while his, he gives his, his family a vacation. Uh, but before he even left for the campaign... Spafford received a message that the ship his family was on had collided collided with an iron sailing vessel, and all four of his daughters had died. All four, between the ages of 2 and 11, gone. So Spafford boarded a boat to take him to Europe, where his surviving, grieving wife was waiting for him. And on the way, when he was on the boat, as the story goes, that's when he wrote the words did as well. The version we sang this morning only included the refrain from Spafford's original lyrics. But that in itself is remarkable, isn't it? (laughs) It is well with my soul. How could he say that? The only way he could say that, with any sincerity at all, is if he had a peace that transcended understanding. Was he devastated? I am sure he was. Was he angry? I bet there was some anger, too. But even in the midst of that horror, he was still thankful. And the lyrics to the song make it very clear what he was thankful about. He wrote, Though Satan should buffet, Buffet is an old-fashioned word for strike violently. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, Let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. In the next verse, he says, My sin, O oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Unbelievable. In his suffering, he was still able to rejoice in the Lord. He was still able to be thankful. Why? Because the gospel was real to him. Because he really believed Christ had regarded his helpless estate and shed his own blood for his soul. He really believed that all of his sin had been nailed on the cross and that he bore it no more. That wasn't just stale theology to him. It wasn't just a religious preference. It wasn't just an idea, it was his hope and his peace. It was real. And I want to believe that it can be that real for us too. I certainly hope that none of us have to go through anything like that to find out. But I want the gospel to be that real for us, for me. I want what Jesus has done to have that much power in our lives. I want it to be so real that we can honestly say that we have a reason to rejoice no matter what. Paul says that this kind of peace, this peace that transcends all understanding, it guards, it guards our hearts and our minds. And you can see that in Horatio Spafford. His heart and his mind were safe against the worst the world could throw at him. The world's peace isn't like that. The world's peace might guard your bank account for a while or guard your physical health or guard your reputation, but only the peace of God, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, the peace that comes from knowing him and trusting in Christ, only that peace can guard our hearts and our minds. In our hearts and our minds, that's who we really are. That's what really needs to be protected and saved, not our money or our reputations or even our physical health but our souls. And when we really believe in the very depth of our being that our souls are safe, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious. We can be free from adrenaline and glucocorticoid tyranny. Finally, it's important to recognize the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. When we hear about a guy like Horatio Spafford, we need to realize that Horatio Spafford's peace didn't just come from the fact that he was really, really good at reminding himself over and over that Jesus had died for him. It was the Holy Spirit that was really, really good at reminding him over and over that Jesus had died for him and making that real to him. Jesus told his disciples, The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So it's not just knowing a bunch of facts about Jesus that gives us relief from anxiety, but it's God's real presence in our lives here and now. And here's the good news. That presence is something that God guarantees to us if we ask him. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to a crowd of fathers, If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? What Jesus is saying there is that God, like any parent, wants to give His kids good gifts. And the best gift of all is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of His presence with us. And Jesus assures us that anyone who asks will receive that presence. It's a guarantee. And that's so important because When we bring our requests to the Lord, there's not always a guarantee that everything that we request will be granted. But this is the guarantee, the guarantee that he's with us, the guarantee of his presence. And it's that presence that makes it possible for someone like Horatio Spafford to write It Is Well after losing his daughters. It's that presence that somehow assures us that sin and death and suffering are temporary. And it's that presence that reminds us that Jesus has overcome the world, even when it feels like the world is overcoming us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God that commands us not to be anxious and that gives us reasons not to be anxious. Lord, I pray for those of us who are struggling with anxiety. I pray that we would be able to rest in your presence. I pray that we would be able to rest in the knowledge that you have regarded our helpless estate, that you are making all things new, and that our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to your cross. Lord, we we pray for for freedom from worry. And God, we, we just ask for that presence. We ask for that presence to meet us right here and right now. We Thank you, God, that we can ask for what we want and that we have things to be thankful for too. In Jesus' name, amen.